0: It's April 21st, 2021. It's going to be a good evening, Saints. It's been ten and a half weeks since many of us have seen each other. That felt like an eternity. I miss you. Unashamedly, I love the others. I mean, uh, I'm supposed to say I love everybody equally. I love everybody else almost as much as I love you. The other churches of the one association have never been better than they are at this moment. King's Harvest is laboring away and seeing lives dramatically devoted to the kingdom of God. Submission Ministries. Man, those guys are growing. And it's not only in their character, it's also in their quantity. They're starting to take over that whole block. A rising church. It's turning out serious disciples. They rival the intensity here at LCM. You're going to have to keep running, saints. In fact, some of them are going to visit us over the next month. I I thought it was a good idea to get fire together with fire. Remnant Church has completed their building projects, and they're, they're advancing at an astonishing rate. One light in Indonesia... They're seeing former Muslims fully embrace Yeshua HaMashiach, King of the Jews. More than that, we're seeing lives that accompany that profession of faith. They're embracing the full-blown, Pentecostal, fire-from-heaven way of life that we have. Amen. Ihad to Peru, they're digging into the difficult work of uprooting false Christianity from sincere and real believers, but they're doing it with determination and they're succeeding at every level. Did I tell you guys that I miss you tonight? I want to get straight into the word. Our title is going to be committed, committed this message. Well, it'll be an introduction to a series that will begin on Sunday. Sunday, we're going to begin talking about remember. Remember is an important word in the Bible, and I'm going to tell you I've been watching it transform lives. The next few months, well, they're going to be nothing short of revolutionary. They're going to help you develop in your victorious walk in Jesus Christ. Do you want victory? Let me talk to you about committed as we get ready to turn our Bibles to Matthew 26. So committed, the all-knowing, Google, gives the definition of feeling dedication or loyalty to a cause, activity, or job. Wholeheartedly dedicated. Not bad. The 1828 Merriam-Webster's Dictionary's first entry, ascending to prison, putting into prison, or imprisonment, like that brother needs to be committed. <laughs> when you consider the question of Are you committed? these varying definitions they can uh, really take on different dimensions, huh? Are you completely committed to finishing what you started? Well, yes, have you been committed? Well, do you mean to an institution or an insane asylum or a nursing home <laughs> Committed has varied meanings and a lot of semantic drift through the years. But I want to pick up in Matthew 26. Is that all right? In Matthew 26, verse 35. Say there when you're there. there. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the other disciples said the same. Now, of course if you're reading the headings in your Bible, this is being said right before the disciples are about to be found sleeping during Jesus' great hour of need. Y'all recognize that? Some would call this a commitment problem. I mean, think about it. A brother who just can't stay awake in church. (laughs) Or that sister that catches her afternoon nap during Bible study. Couldn't you rightly assume that he or she has a real commitment problem? Couldn't you think that? I have to admit, that's how I've thought about it most of my life. Before we dive into the deep failures of these men, I want to look at uh, how it's said in a parallel account. You keep your finger in Matthew 26. I'm going to be there all night. This is... Mark 14 31 parallel verse, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This really brings up a huge problem. Did the disciples have a commitment problem? If you cannot do what you said you're going to do, do you have a commitment problem? Were they not properly motivated? Did they not possess the right desires? Because, uh, you know, in a few minutes, they're not even going to be able to stay awake, much less die for Jesus. Let's walk through their history for a minute. Is that all right? Committed. (laughs) Luke 5, 27 says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Consider this. Matthew Levi, previously the tax collector, got up from that position. He left everything that he owned and he followed Jesus. We're now three years into that following, and he's promised to die with Jesus on the final Passover. Do you really think he wasn't committed? How about Mark 3? In Mark 3.13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. Each of the 12 were specifically picked because Jesus wanted them. Out of a nation of millions, he wanted these 12. Each of them were chosen because he wanted them. And each of the 12 responded to Jesus' desire by coming to him, and every one of them left everything to do it. Were they committed? A few minutes ago, you said no wrestle with that for a minute. At the moment of their calling, even years into it, you have to remember something. They are not yet what they will one day be. Let's keep going. Matthew four eighteen. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there. He saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They left their livelihoods. They left their fathers, two of them literally their father standing in the boat and their, their home. To follow Jesus. The call wasn't a matter of mere commitment though. It was a call to be made into something. And they are not yet what they will be. Jesus chose them. And they in turn chose him. This was not just for salvation. It was for transformation. It was to be made into something more than they once were. Far from an act like a transaction. This would be a lifetime process. It wasn't that they weren't committed. In fact, in John eleven sixteen, 16, which we won't go to, even Thomas, who goes down as doubting Thomas, misunderstands when Lazarus dies and Jesus is going. And he's like, Lazarus is dead? Jesus is going there? We'll go to die with him too. And Thomas is one of the 12 As Jesus is going into Gethsemane that says, we'll die with you. It really wasn't about commitment as much as it is that with man, continual transformation is impossible. I want you to consider in the next interaction between Jesus and a rich man, the disciples' response. Do I have your attention? Well, good. In Matthew 19, we're going to be in verse 22. Keep your finger in Matthew 26. You only had to move seven chapters. That's a good number. You won't get blisters like that. It'll be okay. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, what else did he have? He had the right answers. He had an emphasis on the commandments. He knew Jesus was good. He even called him good teacher. But now he's leaving sad because something more is required of him and he just can't do it. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. If Jesus has to look at you and say, I tell you the truth, you better pay attention because everything he says is true. I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, how are the rich saved? No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Something about this interaction where they realize one step's not enough. Two steps is not enough. There is a continual process. It scared them. They said, who can be saved? Now, maybe you're not a rich man in here. So we're, we don't have to liken you unto a camel going through the eye of a needle. Maybe you're a dachshund trying to get into a soapbox. I don't know. But with man, some things are simply impossible, no matter how committed. A camel could try to get through the eye of the needle, but can he do it? Verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter steps right up to the plate and answers him. Hey, 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 Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? See, Peter's not quite got the point yet. It's not about leaving everything. It's about every next step that you must take. It's about a continual transformation. Hey, Peter, you're leaving everything. That was just the first step. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Does Jesus have your attention now? Second time he said it. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I want to get something across to you. They were committed when they started to follow him. And all they knew is they're supposed to fish for men. That they would be made into that But what are they being told here? You will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Even if they had reached a place in their walk where they were able to fish for men now. You know what they're not yet fit to do? Judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Transformation is a process. And it's a process into something that is so high, it cannot be done by yourself no matter how committed. Are you getting that the disciples didn't have a commitment problem? They left everything. They followed. They pledged their lives and their deaths. Eventually, each of them would give their lives for the gospel, except Judas, who killed himself, and John, who nobody could kill. They had embarked on a lifetime journey that would continually transform them into men who would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes alongside Jesus. They didn't even know what they had quite signed up for. They didn't know how high the bar was. A lot like you when you got married or got saved. And nevertheless, the goal is set by God. And in your strength and in your commitment, it is simply not possible they were committed in the google sense devotion love loyalty to the cause i feel like i'm about to start an antifa or blm rally right now and they were committed in the webster sense committed to the institution of the kingdom of god they offered themselves as slaves or prisoners to the process of becoming like jesus but do you know what They didn't know where they yet needed to be transformed. They knew that they were committed to Jesus, but they didn't know what that commitment would mean. They didn't know what about them would fall short of where he was taking them, which means they're a lot like you. You're committed to Jesus. I'll die for you, Jesus. Yes, but you don't know what he's going to ask of you while you're living for him. Hey, would you like to get back to the opening text? I'm just going to camp there for a while tonight. Is it okay, Miss Hannah? Wow, amen. I missed y'all. Glenn, it's good to see you in the house of God. You know, this is a a beautiful church. Got some lion cubs on the front row down there. Yeah. Are you in Matthew 26? Let's pick up in Gethsemane. You going to stay engaged with me? Sometimes the other churches make me work a little bit to keep their attention. You're not going to do that to me, are you? (laughs) Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Do you really think that their friend saying this to them had no effect on them? So you've read it long enough that it's hard to engage it as real. Imagine for a moment that Pastor Matthew is collapsed over here on the floor. He is sweating as if it were drops of blood. He is in agony, and he looks at you and says, Please, please pray. I am overwhelmed to the point of death. Are you telling me that you wouldn't care? Well, they love Jesus. He picked them, 12, out of a whole nation. He loved them. Do you really think for a minute that they didn't want to pray with him? They loved him. They expressed it in their actions at every turn for three years. They showed more commitment in those three years than most Christians in an American church can scrape together in 30 And yet we can read this and we can be like, man, what's wrong with these guys? Because you know what's happening. I'm sure they were concerned for Jesus. I'm sure they were moved for Jesus. I'm sure they wanted to keep watch with him. In fact, this is the first time they have ever seen him like this. I challenge you to find any point in the ministry where Jesus is overwhelmed in his soul to the point of death and expresses that to them. They have never seen their friend, their master, their teacher in this condition. Do you really think that they don't want to help him? Verse 39. Going a little further. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray. So that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. This was not a commitment problem. At least not as in a desire to do what Jesus wants. This is a human frailty problem. This is a weakness problem. More shockingly, one that none of them knew that they had. If you ask them 30 minutes before this, they're ready to die for Jesus. They had all of the right desire, all of the right motivation. They were committed! But they did not have the ability to do what was being asked of them, and they didn't know that they didn't have the ability to do it. Jesus says plainly to them, The spirit of the men was willing, but the weakness of their own flesh overcame them. Inside of their spirit, they wanted what was right. They wanted to help their friend. They wanted to intercede. They wanted to die with him, but he wasn't asking them to die with him. He was asking them to pray. And they couldn't. You're beginning to feel the situation a little bit yet? Can you imagine how you would feel if he came back to you and he asked you a question? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Do you really think Jesus didn't know the answer to the question? Why would a man ask a question when the answer to the question is staring at him? Because he wanted them to see that they had a need they didn't even know about. And it wasn't that they weren't committed. It wasn't that they didn't believe. It's that they didn't know how pathetically weak and in need they were. Well, that's a good thing. It is just them. You know, I hadn't planned to do this, but I think I'm going to. Is that all right? I'm, I'm home now. I feel certain liberty. If I get spanked in the elders meeting tomorrow, then I just do. I want to introduce you to a traveling companion of mine. Is there a little picture of a dog back there? Yeah, that's, that's, that's my only male traveling companion. One week a a month is just me and him. What you're looking at is, uh, is the sheer shock and bewilderment on his face when he realizes that the new girl dachshund also gets a bone like he gets a bone. I want to tell you, he's a committed little animal. When I say he's committed, he's, he's in the pastor's office right now. He will give me an unbroken eye stare, shake with desire to be wherever I am. He's so committed that he'll attack a Doverman or a Rottweiler without a second thought. Am I lying? He will give his life to protect me. He's committed. He wants to be wherever I am. Of course, he also, the moon strikes him right on a certain night of the week, will do obscene things to a pillow. <laughs> and it's not that he's not committed to me. It's in his nature. And I can discipline him. And he'll stop for a while, but, but it's still there. Next time it'll be somebody's sock or their favorite stuffed animal. He's committed to me. He loves me. He wants to be everywhere that I am. But, on occasion, even though he knows I disapprove of it, he'll eat from a trash can. See, he has these base desires at work in him that overcome his commitment and his love for me. In other words, he's a lot like some of you single guys. I don't know why you married guys are laughing. (laughs) Oh, and it's interesting how silent you women are. See, the disciples had a weakness problem that they didn't even know they had. And they were pretty sure that their commitment was strong enough to get it all done. That's a very high view of yourself. I think we probably ought to get back to the text uh, or I'll get in trouble. If I get thrown out of this church, I don't know where I go. (laughs) Let's pick up in verse 42, Matthew 26, 42. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. I want you to catch the ironic juxtaposition here. In the very same instance that Jesus' disciples are finding out that they have an innate weakness, although they love Him, although they're committed to Him, although they want to die for Him, they are weak. Jesus is embracing the fact that even though He's sinless, He's reached the end. Of his human frailty. Is there any other way dad? I don't. Is there any other way? You know. The parallel accounts that I won't turn to. In Luke 22.43. For your notes. Say that an angel from heaven. Came and strengthened Jesus. Now if he had to be strengthened. Ask yourself why. This wasn't for show. He had reached the end of what could be summoned from the human realm. And he's asking his father for help to do what even Jesus is being transformed. He's never disobedient, but he's also not yet the savior of the world. He's destined to be and has not accomplished it yet. And he needs power from heaven to help him. Now, it was shameless to compare you singles, marrieds, males and females to Brutus. But I want you to know I do love him. He's a dog. That's his nature. We have access to an entirely different nature that we do not live in enough. And we're committed to it. We can, we can rattle off the scriptures about it. Our real problem is you don't know where you yet need to be transformed. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. Do you really think their eyes were more heavy? I mean, anatomically, how does that happen? I mean, I've seen some bug-eyed people, but do your eyes actually get more heavy? Of course not. It's a euphemism. The harder they tried, the heavier this got. If I'm not speaking to you yet, it's because you're not that smart. But it's okay. God can transform you. The harder you try, the worse your failure will get what then? We shouldn't try? No, no, no. Jesus is showing us what to do. You're trying in all of the wrong ways. You try to discipline yourself to have moral thoughts. You try to discipline yourself to be good. I'm not talking about those of you lost in the room. We'll talk to you at the end of the service. I'm talking to you Christians. The harder you try, the heavier it will get. You need a change in your nature. You say, no, 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 I got that back at the cross. That's your problem. You think that you got everything that you needed in a one-time transaction a long time ago when you bravely lifted a pinky as an eight-year-old. How can anybody be saved? That's the conclusion the disciples came to when they listened to Jesus talking. And they pointed backwards to what they had once done for him without knowing what they would yet have to do for him and what they were being made into. Hey, Mark 1440 is a parallel to this. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. (laughs) They did not know what to say to him. Now, I'm not saying that what they're doing is, is not sin. I'm saying that it's derivative of human weakness rather than a desire to rebel. If you're in here and you desire to rebel, rebel God will spank you six ways from Sunday or burn you right out of our midst. I, again, I'm not concerned with the lost person in this room right now. I'm talking about those of you that are fully Committed in every way that you know how to be, but you do not yet know where you need to be transformed because after all, you're committed and you really thought that's all there was. I'm saying that these men still need to be transformed in an ongoing process rather than a one-time transaction. They're still loved. They're still cold. But they still need further Transformation. I suspect that the same is true for every person in this room. But I also suspect that most of you have no idea where those areas are. You know, trials, failings, they're great opportunities to see where you yet need to be transformed. Well, much of our transformation is instantaneous at the cross because you didn't have to do anything for it at all. It's kind of like being delivered in the Exodus, right? In the, in the Exodus, God does all the work and you, just, uh, you put blood of the lamb on the door. Of course, after the Exodus, you then have to start fighting. It's like the Battle of Jericho. At the Battle of Jericho, you don't do anything but walk around the walls and they fall down. Of course, at the Battle of I, you run into your first inability based on sin still present in your life. But it's not the end of the story. He shows you how to go get those gold wedges out from under Achan's mat and go and win the battle. See, that is more representative of the Christian life. We think that it was all the cross. No, he did everything he needed to do at the cross. What you need to do begins there and does not end there. As we move through a few verses about this ongoing process, I want to show you a slide. Is that all right? You've seen this one before, and so I'm not going to teach on it. This is salvation in the past tense. Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been. Somebody say, have been. Have been been saved through faith. Of course, if you look at Romans 6.11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. See, it sounds like there's still work to be done. Or... 1 Peter 1, nine, For you are say are, are are receiving the gold of your faith the salvation of your souls not just past tense ongoing right now or 1 John 2:28 and now dear children continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming what you started at the cross must continue you know there's even salvation in a future tense the glorification of your body not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Salvation is in all three tenses in the Bible. It's an actual journey that begins but does not end at the cross. And I'm not even talking to you about salvation. I'm talking to you about your need for transformation. See, We say, well, I got saved. Oh, I I am saved. The thing is, is I'm, uh, I know there's been a lot wrong, but I'm saved. This is a really neat little security blanket that you wrap around yourself. You know what we should be talking about? Where you need to yet be transformed. Where you fall short of what he has ultimately called you to be. Where you thought, hey, I got out of the boat, I'm saved, but you're still not a fisher of men. Where you say, hey, I made one disciple, praise God, I'm a fisher of man. Yes, but he's called you to rule the 12 tribes sitting on 12 thrones. See, you don't know how far you yet have to go. And God arranges trials and failures to show you, could you not stay awake with me one hour? He's not being mean to them. He knows their spirit is willing And that they do not know how weak and unable to accomplish what is ahead of them they are. One of the things that I love about my little Brutus is he will take on a Rottweiler. He has no idea that he's nine pounds and he has no ability to complete that task. I love that heart. But if it was actually his job to kill Rottweilers, he'd need a transformation. A lab, maybe, but a Rottweiler. Now, I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions as we're thinking about this. I'm 35 minutes in, and I didn't want this to be a long message, but it's deeply personal to me. What happens if we accommodate these weaknesses? What happens if instead of asking to be transformed, We ask for accommodation. Can you imagine the disciples who Mark says, uh, they did not know what to say to him. Can you imagine if instead he had recorded them being defensive about this? Well, I'm just going to pull a few church conversations I've had through the years. Hey, Jesus, the thing is, you were, you're gone way too long. The problem's not really I was sleeping. The problem is you took too long. Hey, Jesus, you know what we've been through this week? Can you imagine if the disciples said that to him? Mark says, they did not know what to say to him. But what if it had said, you know, Jesus, the thing is you took too long. Hey, hey Jesus, do you know what our week has looked like? How dare you, Jesus. Not everybody feels the same way about prayer that you do. Maybe they'd go a different direction. Maybe, maybe it was more like this. Maybe they demanded that Jesus structure prayer time in better accordance with their, well, with their sleeping habits. Hey, Jesus, you know I need my sleep. Jesus, I've had sinus headaches. If you hadn't caught on, these are real quotes just adapted. Jesus, it wasn't very wise of you to choose such an inconvenient time. I mean, we stayed up all night last night watching The Chosen or The Passion of the Christ. Or what if they simply demanded of Jesus that he learned to relate to them better? That's very woke. Jesus, the thing is, is that you know me, and you should have known that I don't like to be in those kind of positions. The thing is, Jesus, if you had just asked me differently, then I surely would have done better. Jesus, I think we can all agree, since 11 of us fell asleep, evidently your communication was not clear enough to us. Or maybe, in a very new millennia kind of translation, we would see the disciples explaining that each of their situations was sufficiently unique because of some childhood trauma. That they had. Jesus, the thing is, is my Father always made me pray at night, and, and that only caused me to hate prayer. Jesus, one time at night, I was trying to pray, and the Spirit led me to a better form of prayer at a different time. Jesus My last church did these kind of things, and I promised myself and my family we'd never be involved in something like that again. Of course, the disciples didn't say those kind of things, but you do. And I do too. When we come to moments of absolute failure that point to our need for transformation, we have a real tendency to ask for accommodation instead. See, we get defensive. We, we say, hey, something is wrong with your observation, sir, because there's surely nothing wrong with me. I got saved, you know, just as saved as you are, in fact. We get insecure. So you're saying I'm awful. Then there's no need for me to try anymore. We get critical. Yeah, well, I fell asleep, but you sure have an ugly dog. These are all hindrances to our transformation, aren't they? Let's roll through this for a moment. Are y'all all all right? I haven't damaged you, have I? No, this is a warrior culture. What uh, What does this kind of accommodation look like in marriage? Well, Mr. Christian comes home. He's had a long, hard day and 12 other excuses. He gets to the door, he throws open the door, and he trips over the laundry basket. Mrs. Christian, you didn't straighten up the house? Well, no, I didn't. Long list of excuses. If you had just picked up the laundry, then I wouldn't be in such a foul mood. Or, if all it takes is a laundry basket to get you out of the spirit, what does it point to about you? That you need to be transformed. You're asking to be accommodated instead of transformed. And the accommodation is hindering your transformation. You know what is worse about this in marriage? It often becomes one person's job to be the enabler for the other person. And it shows up because you can never do enough. I moved the laundry basket. Yeah, but the thing is, is the soap was still crinkled. Toothpaste was out of order. And so you default into roles where one person's job is to make sure they don't do anything that might make it more difficult or point to the other one's need for transformation. Oh, it's with the best of intentions. I mean, Judah knows how his dad is, so don't let his dad get into that kind of confrontational position. This is what psychologists would call codependency, isn't it? Well, if you think it only happens in marriage... The thing is, is I know little Johnny just uh, threw something nasty that came from somewhere on his body. I don't want to talk about it, your wall, but he has a cold. Accommodation. Don't put my kid in that situation because then he would, he would actually be expected To grow into a more mature character. And I don't want it to reveal just how little faith I have in my God, my child, and my parenting. Heard of being punished with the soft bigotry of low expectations? We do it every day. How about accommodation in Christian circles? The chairs need to be really padded, you know? Because the people need to be able to pay attention. We couldn't ask for transformation in your soul so that you were so hungry for the word of God that you would sit on concrete. I mean, we're Americans, you know? I really want to be baptized. Is the water heated? I really feel God, God has called me to your church. It'll be the biggest blessing to you. I mean, uh, he's called me here but what's your children's church program like? See, what we're asking for is continual accommodation, and it keeps you from seeing the need for your personal transformation. Anytime you're in a discussion and you realize that you're being defensive, there's a reason for that. Jesus was never defensive about anything. If you're defensive, if you need to be able to point out something wrong with their discussion, their argument, you're not very secure in who you are. And so you're asking to accommodate by finding fault with the other person so that there's no need for your transformation. If you're in positions where you're vacillating, although, we'll do this. No, no, we'll do this. No, no, we'll do this. That points to a real need for transformation because God's never like that. If you get really critical about the world around you, I don't know that I like that church anymore. Ever since they stopped serving coffee in the lobby. Find yourself being critical towards that. You might just be hiding your need for transformation. now before I get to more serious parts of this message (laughs) I do feel it necessary to stop and encourage you for a minute they were committed they wanted to die with him they loved him they were blind to their own need so a stone's throw away from him while he's facing his own need and asking appropriately. He's drawing their attention to could you not keep watch with me? Because he wanted them to see that they couldn't and learn to ask for transformation. If you ask your spouse to accommodate you, you will not be transformed. If you accommodate your children, they will not be transformed. If you expect the world around you to adjust for you, then you cannot be transformed. But if in every one of those situations you recognize, regardless of what they did, there's a problem right here, then you can take that to Father and say, there has to be a better way. Strengthen me from heaven. And that's what the Christian life is actually about. Now... I'm getting skinnier and my, my hair's falling out. And like I was going through puberty again, I have the largest zit I've had in my entire life on my neck today. It's very discouraging. But I'm growing. I also am not the man that I once was and I am not the man that I will be in another year. The life of the Christian is about continual transformation, but it requires you to be in situations that highlight the need and for you to not deflect them in accommodation. So let me ask you a couple questions, serious questions. Are you ready for them? Not everybody said yes. Are you ready for them? Yes. Do we need to build nappy time into prayer time? Are you sure? Because if you pick your church based on how close it is to your house, aren't you kind of doing that? If you go to a church only because you like everything that they say, aren't you kind of doing that? How would that work if you picked your doctor like that? Do we need to build nappy time into prayer time? Do we need to ask for alternate circumstances? Remember that you said that. The next time it gets difficult and you think the problem is with the circumstances, remember that you said we do not need to ask for alternate circumstances. Even Jesus asked three times. But every time... He was committed to what the Father wanted. It's in our nature. It wasn't sin for Jesus to ask. It would have been sin if he did not do what the Father said to do. I understand that you don't want your weakness exposed. I understand that you are scared that you don't have what it takes. Accept it. You don't. And learn to ask for transformation. See there's an American with Disabilities Act and it's it's an ADA you might see posters somewhere maybe maybe not but what it essentially means is that an employer an employer has to provide reasonable accommodations for any disability it sounds like a sweet thing. It sounds like a noble thing. Like if I got a second store business and we're uh, sewing for a living and somebody applies and, and they're in a wheelchair. I, I, if it's reasonable and God only knows what's reasonable, then I need to find a way for them to safely get to the second floor. That's, that's incumbent upon me. That is an American Disabilities Act. The problem is, is when you apply those kind of principles to the kingdom... What you're saying is we never expect anybody to get healed. We never expect anybody to be transformed. Nobody will ever be more than they are today. So since you know my wife is like this, don't put her in that position. That's not good, friends. Instead, we need to stop asking for accommodations for our disabilities. We need to start asking for transformation, which means you're going you're gonna to have to know where they are. You're going to have to be able to identify them, don't you think? Do we need nappy time built into our prayer time? No. Do we need alternate sets of circumstances? No. Do we need to rely on the Father to accomplish His will through us even if it takes angels coming from heaven? Yes. How far do we have to go? Accommodation versus transformation. Romans 12.2 Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is spoken to spirit-filled, saved believers in the church of Rome. But they still needed transformation. They still needed continual renewing. Otherwise they would not know how to determine God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, when we ask to be accommodated in an area, something funny happens. It's never enough. When it becomes my wife's responsibility to move the laundry basket, and she moves it, then there's just one more thing she needs to do. And and then one more after that. Because my problem's actually growing. Her enablement's not helping. You got adult children, which in itself should be an oxymoron. Stop helping them. Amen. Stop it. Everything that you do to help them is actually hurting them. But I'm scared will grow some faith. The best thing that could happen to them is them have to sleep in a YMCA or something for a while. Then they'll stop spending your money. They'll stop getting drunk and acting like profligates. And they'll actually have to need transformation. Just be real, you don't trust God enough. You don't trust His transformation in their character enough. You don't trust enough. Maybe it's not the kid that's got the problem. Or maybe it's a double blind. You both have a problem. We need transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being are being being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, you're credited with His righteousness, but you are still being transformed into His likeness. You are given credit for being righteous like Him, but in reality, your life does not look that much like Him, at least not as much as it will next week. If you're transformed rather than accommodated. This whole process results according to this verse in ever increasing glory. You find that your walks become stagnant. I promise you it's because you're ceasing to be transformed and you're asking for accommodation. You will only achieve continual transformation only achieve ever increasing glory. By absolute reliance on his spirit. See, the spirit's not interested in hearing you say, yeah, but the thing is, if Ray hadn't said that, then I wouldn't have done this. He doesn't deal with you like that at all. He pierces your heart with the word about your heart, and he doesn't speak to you about Ray, unless it's to heal Ray. You can always tell where you're accommodating because the problem is with the world around me, the spouse around me, the kids around me, the job around me. The problem is with everything but me. Now, you're Christians, you don't think you do it, but I bet, I bet if you sit on this for a minute, you'll find out very much that you do. Second Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly are being renewed day by day. In the Christian walk, the renewal is every day. Not 20 years ago at the cross. By the way, you're supposed to be carrying that thing with you every day. Being ever transformed. When we require others to accommodate us, you actually waste away. You grow worse. The weakness only grows so that you're never able to truly accommodate it. The brother starts helping you. Like, hey, man, I see you can't carry your bag. Let, let me help you carry your bag. When really he just can tell that you have a bad attitude since you have to carry your bag. Well, now you expect him to carry your bag. And you're getting weaker all of the time. What if instead we simply said, mighty God, I don't have it and you do. You have all the resources of heaven. transform me so that I can carry the load I was meant to carry. Say, well, I was just trying to help my brother by accommodating him. I don't want him to fail. Yes, but you're hurting him. How about you show some faith that your brother can be transformed? You know why you don't, because you expect him to accommodate you in other areas. You have a sick little trade going on. I don't like codependence and enablement in the body of Christ, I think it leads to truly destructive relationships characterized by resentment if somebody is genuinely trying to help you and you do not appreciate it that's because you're used to being accommodated i know everybody came over and helped me with the building project but the thing is is they didn't stay long enough you're a disabled christian you're so used to being accommodated you think it's somebody else's job to carry your load and so even when somebody else tries to help you it's not a blessing how pathetic how weak How lowly, how base. What a need for transformation. Because when you realize it's your job to complete this project and nobody else's and God gave it to you and you have to depend on him for help. And then you see somebody coming even for a few minutes. You're like, oh, praise God. You answered my prayer. Thank you. JJ is here. JJ is like, dude, I got 45 minutes and you're kissing his feet because that's 45 minutes of help that you are not entitled to. I hope I'm preaching to you. I've been away a while. Maybe maybe, maybe I've forgotten what the congregation's like. Well, let's read Colossians 3.9. It starts in a very interesting way when talking to Christians. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed... You mean you took off your old clothes, you put on new clothes, but the new clothes are still becoming new? Yeah, you put on the Jesus Christ suit, but you hadn't quite grown into his shoulders. You need to be transformed. Say, I was transformed at the cross. Well, that's your problem right there, buddy. You may have indeed been transformed at the cross, but not as much as you need to be. An infant is not a man. And the day that you were born again, you became an infant, but you're called to grow up into manhood in Christ. Have have put on the new self, which is being renewed. We've taken off the old and we're putting on the new, but even the new is being renewed. Let's read Ephesians 4.22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which (coughs) is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That thing that you've taken off that's not really supposed to be a part of you, by the way, it it still kind of is, and it's still being corrupted by the desires you still have and shouldn't have. I'm not going to ask you how often you change clothes. I don't want to be embarrassed by your answer, whether it's too many times or not enough. But I hope it's at least daily. Daily. Daily, we have to put on Christ. Daily, we have to put off the old desires. You can't do that if you're accommodating them and you don't know it. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The old life must continually be put off. Accommodation shows up like this. It's a lie to yourself that says, If they would have done something different, then I would have done better. Lie. If they would have done something different, I would have done better. Lie. If you were in a garden all by yourself, the only one on the planet, the only difference between that situation and the one that you're blaming on your brother right now, is you wouldn't know you needed to be transformed. You understand what I'm getting at? God puts us in pressing situations to show you where your weakness is, not someone else's. The new life must be continually put on. Not a one-time transaction. It is a perpetual transformation. We are able to be made new in the attitude of our minds tonight. It's not something that happened a long time ago. It's something God wants to do right now. And you'll probably need to do it again in a day. Accommodation hinders the process. Transformations required. Philippians 2.12. This has got to be one of my favorites. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I don't know people that take that scripture seriously enough. Saved, being saved, will be saved, but must be continuing to work it out. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. We are to continually work these things out with the greatest of care. That can't be done if you're expecting everyone else to work around your issues so that you don't have to work through your issues. That's very quiet. If you expect everybody else to work around your sensitivities, the thing is, is I just don't like to be challenged in that area. I don't like to talk about those subjects. How dare you put me in that position? You never protect me. I knew a woman that once told her husband, you never protect me. And yet after 28 years, you're still alive. How did that happen, honey? What she meant was, I'm vulnerable. I'm uncomfortable. I do not want to have to go talk to Pastor P. Rowe about my embedded offense with him. And you're making me do it and I feel like you're not protecting me. No, baby, I'm cultivating you. I believe God will transform you. I have every confidence that he will meet us in this situation and that you'll walk out more like Jesus. See, accommodation... Won't produce that. It is God, say it is God, it is God, who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. They could not stay awake. It's not that they weren't committed, it's not that they didn't love him, it's not that they weren't ready to die for him, it's that they didn't possess the ability. But he Will work in you. He will produce his will. In you. You just have to ask. And that's not about salvation. That is subsequent. To salvation. In other words. He transforms you. As you work to expose these issues. Before him. And treat them as your. Christian responsibility you have time for another scripture? Yeah. I mean, if you don't, it's okay. Tisdale, do we have time for another scripture? Romans six eleven. Forget that you've heard it many times before. That might be your problem. You might have heard it enough times that you've managed to make it not apply to you anymore. You're pretty sure your lost relatives need to hear it. But to be honest, this was written to the Christian community, not your relatives. Can I make a straight comment? I'm, a, I'm, I'm scared for you. If you can't draw a clear line between family defined biblically as those who do the will of God and family simply because you happen to come out of the same uterus, if you cannot draw that line they will never see separation between family that is God and family that is water of the womb and want to close the distance. And that's because you don't have the guts to stand with Jesus. But if you do, if like Jesus, you can look at Mary, James, Jude standing outside and go, those who do the will of the Father are my family and leave them standing outside... Do you know what happens? Mary ends up in the upper room. James writes the book of Jude and James writes the book of James and Jude writes the book of Jude. Do you know why? They recognized their situation. If you can be manipulated by everybody that thinks that they're related to you and what they say matters to you more than what God's Word says. You're accommodating yourself. I don't want to tell you what I could call that. Let's instead read Romans 6, 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why does he say count? Because he knows that it's not actually true. It's an attitude. You know that sin is present there, It's present at all times, but you might not know where it is. When you find it, count it as dead. Wherever it is, consider it dead. See, Peter stood up and said, we will never deny you. We're ready to die with you. All the others said the same. And then three times they all fall asleep. They didn't know that that weakness was in them. And we haven't even gotten to the next 12 hours. We're three times and with a few construction level words... He denies Jesus. He hadn't even hit bottom yet. He had no idea how weak he was, but he did know he left everything to follow Jesus. He did know he was destined to sit on a throne with Jesus. He just didn't know how much work was left to be done in him to do those things. I'm trying to acquaint you with the ongoing work of sanctification. I'm trying to tell you that as far as we've come, I believe we have a long ways to go and I'm excited that we can get there. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. You don't let it. Let's be honest though. Can you stop it? No. What you can do is present it before the Lord and say, create in me. Brand new, out of nothing, a new heart. I need you to do it again. This thing I thought was dead at the cross was still there in year five. It's popped up again in year seven. Here I am. And I can either excuse it away as it's just due to traffic and weather circumstances. Or I can own it and say, Lord, I need you to transform it. And miraculous things happen when we come to that place. When it stops being that you're a victim of circumstance and starts being there's no responsibility anywhere in the world that anybody has except I have the responsibility to bring this before my God so that he and he alone can change it. He does. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Righteousness. Guys, identification of these areas is the first step in making sure that you don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. If you're excusing it, then uh, of course it's raining. Accommodation lets sin reign in your body and tends to blame it on the behavior of others. John leaning on Peter, they're both snoring. Jesus is there, he's praying. And John's like, what's up, Brian? You said you were going to keep me awake. <laughs> Peter's like, you know he's going to ask me. You're sleeping too, but you know he's going to ask me. Where yet, Thomas? You said you would die with him. Could you stand up and take a rebuke with me? Transformation is your responsibility. And no one else can do it for you. And the better news is, no one can keep you from doing it. It's the ongoing power of a right relationship with God. And those of you that are saved, you have that. See, he didn't get buyer's remorse. He didn't like save you and then go, you know what? But seeing how bad you suck... I'm just not sure I can do this. In fact, you were worse than you are now. When he first introduced himself to you, you were worse than you are now. The only problem is now you feel like you should be beyond this point. Talking to all our leaders now as well. And because I should be beyond this point, I'm going to double down and try to hide that I failed in it. No, no. You should bring it right back to him and go, I don't know what to say. He knows what's in you. He gets it. I love what King James says. He knows that man is but dust, whatever that is. (laughs) Listen, every time you ask to be accommodated rather than be transformed, you are hindering the Lord himself from working in you, and he desires to work in you. You were chosen by God to be made into something. What was that? Well, you might say, fishers of men! Sitting on the twelve thrones! Now, those were actually said to other people. But you know what was said to every believer? When he appears, we know that we shall be like him. You were chosen by God to be made into something. Him. Him. He is the image that you're looking for. He is what you are being turned into. Can I say that process is not complete yet? To complete that process, you have to face the hidden areas of fleshly accommodation so that He can transform you. This does not disqualify you. It is actually your qualification. It is your perfection in the kingdom. It is proof that you belong to him. You can be a pastor. Uh, Wait, now we have a whole ecclesiastical structure here. It sprung up in my absence. A home group pontiff. (laughs) And the Lord can be dealing with you because you know good and well that something someone else did Made me feel mad now nothing anybody else does can make you anything it just revealed that you need to be transformed and now you're hearing this and you're like i, I, I think i know what he's talking about for once <laughs> but i could never i could never i could never say lord please transform this and do it in a crowded room because I'm an ecclesiastical leader, what will the people think? Well, now you are trapped into accommodating your reputation. You're trapped into accommodating your position and you've been deceived into thinking it's noble. It's for them. It's for them that I will not expose this, that I will not be transformed in this area. It's for them because after all, I should be beyond this by now. And if I'm not, and they know I'm not, but it's for them. Friends, every heart, every soul, every chosen, loved, and called person in this room, you must be transformed. He wants to transform you. We're charismatics. It's not one magical moment at the altar. It's a lifetime process, but they are often initiated by a spark at an altar and they're maintained as you fan it in the flame, as you feed it in the word and you make it a lifetime practice. You need further transformation and he wants to. Could you stand to your feet? I'm assuming that you don't want to be a disabled Christian. I'm assuming that you don't want to be an enabling Christian. I'm assuming that you don't want to build nappy time into prayer time. Then you have to be transformed. Jesus put them in the same situation again and again and again so that they could see something. They needed transformation in this area. They were overconfident, completely committed, and a total failure. But none of them died that way. Every one of them actually did give their life for Him. Every one of them did extraordinary things for Him because they came to Him again and again and again in brokenness and asked to be transformed. What situations are proving your need for transformation? Because I shouldn't have to prove it to you. I'm going to pray that the presence of a spirit of holiness would come upon this committed crowd, this family, and that he would highlight to you where you must present to him, I need to be transformed. If we spend enough time, I bet I can prophesy it to each one of you. But that's not my job. You're his son, his daughter. He wants this for you if you'll have the courage to respond to it. Father, I'm asking for your spirit of holiness in this room here and now. I'm asking that you would purify your family by transforming our lowliness into what is glorious. Lord, as we broken and humbled... By our own failures, present them to you. Will you breathe life into the dust? Will you raise up something glorious? Lord, transform us. Help us here. Help us now. We need you.